1: Uh, Welcome back to Hurt Tell. Okay, the most appearances on the program in history. The streak continues and extends. Dr. Michael Siegel, that's uh, the DR, real kind of uh, smart doctor with letters after his name for those of you from Logan, friend of the program, Ordinary Times contributor, he flies spacecraft, he teaches young minds, he does all sorts of things. Michael, how are you, sir?
2: I am good. How
1: are you today? Nah, I'm hanging in there. Uh, let's start terrestrially, if that's still a word. I'm not sure if it is or not. Um, your latest throughput. Every Thursday, he does a science feature, Ordinary Times. This is one we've gone over before, but it's gotten new life the last couple of weeks. The COVID lab leak theory. Of course, we all know about the Wuhan Institute of Virology. We know about wet markets. We heard that, we've debated this for, what, two years now? Yep. But... <laughs> You had to write about it because there's been some new developments that have really thrown fuel on the fire, as you say.
2: Yeah, there was a a Republican report from the Senate staffers this week that said that they thought that the lab leak theory was more likely than not to be true. And uh, Vanity Fair ProPublica did a publication that was based partly on that report and also from uh, diplomatic messages uh, and from the Chinese government that seemed to indicate uh, some very big problems with the operations of the Wuhan Institute. Now that's, we've been getting hints of that for a while, but um, so far there's not been a smoking gun. There, what you have with the lab leak theory is a lot of suggestions, you know, and just starting from the fact that it's the Wuhan Institute and the outbreak happened in the city of Wuhan. Now, Wuhan is a massive city and the wet markets have been previously identified as a potential source of a, out, viral outbreak, so it's not that's not completely definitive. But when you dig into the Republican report, and especially when you dig into the ProPublica report, it's still just a lot of conjecture. There's no real solid evidence. We do know that Wuhan had problems with their BSL four biosafety level four facility, but that's not unusual. Um, that that's not n- really new news. Um, This summer, there were two papers published in Science, though, that looked at the COVID-19 virus from a biological perspective. Looked at its DNA, looked at its evolution, and they concluded that a zoonotic outbreak, an outbreak from a bat or a pangolin or something like that, was far more likely than a lab leak. We're probably unlikely to know for sure, and we're especially unlikely to know for sure because China has been very opaque on this issue. Their investigations have been kind of cursory and secretive, and they're not really sharing the kind of information that they need to share to so we can definitively nail nail this down. And we might not even if they were, we might not know for sure. Um, So I would say that you know this is a lot of smoke, but not a lot of fire. A lot of conjecture and suggestion that plays into a lot of people's priors on this. Um, One of our commenters pointed out, you know, this the idea that the virus broke out randomly from a wet market is scarier than the idea that this was a lab leak, something that could be more easily prevented. But um, in the end, the evidence still weighs heavily on a zoonotic origin. It's not, I would say the lab leak is not a conspiracy theory. If you're talking about a lab leak, if you're talking more of the pandemic, you know, Bill Gates did this so we could all have 5G chips installed on us or whatever, that's a conspiracy theory. But I think while the lab leak theory is not ruled out, it's it's very unlikely at this point.
1: Yeah. Dr. Michael Siegel joining us. Here's how I break down news stories. And this is where I have a problem with this one. Um, how we get the news is usually just about as important as the bit of news we're getting. Right. Mm-hmm. So we have a couple parts here and you already touched on one of them. We can't trust anything coming out of China because we know they lie, cheat and steal because they're a dictatorship that has are are obsessed
2: over information control. And image. Why we had the outbreak in the first place, because they spent right. a hard time denying that this thing was communicable to humans. I mean, that right. might not, we might not have contained it anyway, but that certainly didn't help.
1: Yeah. So we've got the China piece. You mentioned this is Republican staffers, but it was put out into the media, the mass media, by Vanity Fair and ProPublica. These are not two organizations that are normally really super friendly to Republicans and or right-wing political entities. ProPublica is very open about being activist journalists. They actually do really good investigative work. They're biased, just program that in. But when they investigate something, it's usually pretty solid. They know what they're doing. Vanity Fair, of course, is a very progressive liberal publication. Normally when they agree with something from the right, you would go, okay, well, these folks don't usually get along. There should be something to that. That kind of piqued my interest. So. If there's a lot of smoke and no fire, why are we having these convergences, do you think? Because that does get people's attention. That lends credibility for some folks, but are they all just chasing threads, or is there some there there?
2: I think that if this did turn out to be a lab leak, it would be one of the biggest news stories ever. You know, people talk about media bias and the media-bearing stories. If a left-leaning organization were to discover the smoking gun and say, this absolutely came from Wuhan they'd win a Pulitzer Prize, you know, they'd, they'd, it'd be the biggest story of the year that this came from the lab. And it's not, you know, an unreasonable supposition. We have had outbreaks from labs before. The last person to die of smallpox got it from a lab leak in the UK. We've had outbreaks specifically of the SARS virus in China and Singapore from people doing research on it. It didn't spread because it was contained and it wasn't COVID-19, which was way more infectious. We have had these outbreaks, so it's not that unreasonable a theory. I think, um, and this is still very early days. There's still a lot of debate going on about the ProPublica piece. I think they may have jumped the gun a little bit. There are a lot of people saying that they mistranslated the Chinese documents or misunderstood them, um, and certainly interpreting government documents from a government like China is is very difficult. And there are a number of other people. There was a virologist who uh, went on Twitter and put out how all his criticisms of the piece that they didn't wait for before they published. Um, So I, I think that they anticipated this was going to be a big story and may have jumped the gun here.
1: Yeah, Dr. Michael Siegel joined us. You and I talked a lot because you were kind of our go-to COVID guy during the COVID pandemic at ordinary times. By the way, we're linking to both the Vanity Fair and ProPublica piece and also the, uh, the congressional report. Read it all for yourself. Same thing Michael says in his piece. Read the whole thing for yourself. Make up your own mind. We're discussing this as if you've read it. Make sure you do your homework here because there's a lot of details involved. But we talked a lot about one of the things that really made the pandemic a mess was communication. We learned really quick that scientists and the common folk don't communicate real good. Academics don't communicate real good. Doctors don't communicate real good. And any of those three that are also government bureaucratic officials, they really don't communicate very good, right? We've established Mm -hmm. that. So you understand where people are coming from with this when it's like, well, hey, when we brought this up in the early days, you were deplatformed. You were told, no, you're crazy. Don't even ask this question. And now we're coming back to this. You understand where people get a little skittish with this stuff because of the way it was communicated, because of the way it was handled. You know, believe the science, all that mess that we've talked over and over and over again until we're sick of it for two years. You know, this isn't in a vacuum. This story's getting more life because of the way people treated it, because of the way people manipulated it, and because of the way you said it before. The way people put their priors on it before. This isn't in a this isn't in a vacuum. This is a sequence of events that brought us back to this story yet again, right?
2: Oh, absolutely. I think that the lab leak theory was dismissed early on and with far more certainty than it warranted. Um, certainly there was a lot of junk science being done that they said, prove the lab theory, like, oh, these sequences only have a one in X chance of occurring. Well, that's why we don't get disease breaks every year. You know, or there were a lot of, I think a lot of people were concerned that validating the lab leak hypothesis would link to really crazy conspiracy theories about a pandemic, or that China was using this as a bioweapon against the West or something like that. Um, But I think that there was a necessity, and I wrote about it at the time, to divide between people saying this may have leaked from a lab by accident or even on purpose versus this was some giant, vast conspiracy to kill millions of people or make Bill Gates rich or whatever their conspiracy was. I, th- I do agree that there was far too early. I don't want to say far too aggressive dismissal of lumping this in with conspiracy theories rather than what it was, which was legitimate, a legitimate question of, hey, there's a virology institute just down just in this same city that researches coronaviruses is there a chance that these are related? It now appears that it's unlikely, but I don't think you can ever rule it out. And so while I would say pandemic conspiracy theories are disinformation or whatever, or crazy, I would say that saying this came from a lab leak is, uh, while not favored by the evidence, is not a crackpot theory at all.
1: Let's get to the core of this as far as um, we're involved, the common folks on our social media, in the commentariat. This really gets to the core of how do we discuss something as complicated as this? When it comes to this disease, you've talked about it before on this program. Science, good science is okay with getting questioned. It's like good religion is good with getting questioned. Good politics is good with getting questioned. You know, One of your signs of integrity is are you okay with getting questions and handling tough questions? We just touched on the whole, you know, believe the science, you're not allowed to ask any questions. That's not good science. At the same time, there's some line in there where you depart from, you know, honest questions, honest skepticism. I'll go, I'll say healthy skepticism, because healthy skepticism is a core part of science, right? Mm -hmm. Where's the line when we're discussing this stuff of, okay, we need to be, you know, discerning of what we're being told here, but it's maybe a topic we don't know a lot about before we descend into, you know, crack pottery, as you so aptly called it, the conspiracy theory, all the noise and nonsense out there. Where's that line? How do we tiptoe up to it? And how do we don't cross it, Professor?
2: That is a very good and difficult question. Um, I would say, look for when people start trying to attribute motives or trying to hammer it into a political frame, that science concerns itself with questions of fact and when you start expanding that to motives and trying to ram it into whatever frame you want it to be in that's where you're going more towards the crack pottery side so to return to the lab leak theory asking legitimate scientific questions did this come from a lab was this related to lab research you know these are these are factual questions you're trying to ascertain facts can we look at this virus virus's gene code and see that it was engineered? Can we look at the pattern of the outbreak and see that it was related to the Wuhan Institute? These are things that have definitive answers. Where you go into conspiracy theories when you, is when you say, well, I think China wanted to do this. I think Bill Gates wanted to do this. I think the big pharma companies wanted to do this. When you start attributing motives, that's where you're le- leaking more and more into conspiracy theory and really mind reading uh, and so forth. When you're trying to cram this into a political frame of anti-Big Pharma or anti-Republican or anti-Democrat. That's where you start leaning more and more into conspiracy theories when you get away from the facts and more towards speculation.
1: Yeah, Dr. Michael Siegel joining us as he often does. This is where it gets back into politics, though, because you cannot take the political angle out of this. Like we just said, our public health system, we've learned it the hard way, we like to think it's, it's an independent organization. It's not. It's a political entity because it's funded by the government and it's a bureaucracy and there's politics involved. Let's just all be adults. We're dealing with China. That's a geopolitical foe. That is not a fair player. That is not an honest dealer of information and or anything else it, because they're an adversary in a lot of ways. That's where the politics of this comes in, and there's no way to separate that. So how do we deal with that? Because even as we're trying to find scientific truth, Look, all those scientists in China, they're all connected because they don't get those jobs unless they're connected. Right. Let's let's all be honest. So how do we deal with the political part of this? Because as we've learned now, public health has a political component that we're just going to have to learn how to deal with here.
2: I think we, that we have to kind of try as best we can to keep the science as a separate issue, focusing science on the facts and less on interpretation. You know, this was something that actually um, Anthony Fauci talked about a little earlier on, um, before sort of he became this figure in the in the media. That his job as a scientist was to inform the politicians of things from a scientific point of view, and their job was to balance things and consider the political uh, con- consequences. You know. If the scientists had had their way, for example, you would have shut down the entire country for like three weeks, but the politicians had to say, that's not going to work. What can we do? What's doable? What's workable? And so I think you have to think of the political sphere as sort of being, having science as a component of that, informing the debate, but ultimately the political sphere has to take into account in diplomacy with China, it has to take into account economics, it has to take into account other factors. I wrote a piece a while ago about this. You know, There was a, a piece about how we should have this rationalia, a society entirely determined by rational principles. And I pointed out that that doesn't really work because many of the questions we deal with are moral questions or economic questions that don't have a scientific answer. You know, you take the abortion issue, for example, science can tell you when certain fetal developments happen, but it can't answer the moral question of when is a fetus a human being? When does it have a right to live? That's a moral question that we are debating very fiercely right now. And so when you talk about something like a pandemic, we can inform people what this disease does, how it spreads, how lethal it is, what are the long-term consequences of an infection? How well do these treatments work? How well do these vaccines work? But ultimately that is feeding into the political question of, all right, what policies do we have in place?
1: Right, Uh, Dr. Michael Siegel. You know, I don't like to get into the Fauci stuff because he came became an avatar for whatever everybody wanted him to be. Yeah. But since you brought it up, I got to say it. Here, here's where the problem comes with that is if you're a just the fact scientist, you can't go on TV and do commentary because the second you start doing commentary, you've lost the science. And then when you put the science hat back on and go, oh, no, I'm just a scientist. No, that's not how that works. You're one or the other. You know, you don't get to go back and forth. It's not, you know, science hat on, science hat off. That's where that becomes a problem, especially if you're going to be the guy and that guy. You know, I think he, folks like Fauci, some of the criticisms unwarranted, some of them is very fair. If you're going to be in that role and you're going to be the highest paid government employee we got on that matter, and you're the expert, you've got to be aware of that, don't you?
2: I think so. There, there is a one of the things I like to say is, and again, return to this idea of a science based run society. When you mix science and politics, the Ten result is tends to not be to to scientize the politics, but to politicize the science.
1: Does politics always win when it's science? Not to interrupt you, but does politics always win when it's politics versus science? Because it sure looks like it is right now.
2: It feels like that a lot. Um, And it it gets it gets very difficult. And just just to give an example of where the politics uh, across the science in this particular case, when the uh, George Floyd protests started, There was a letter that came out from a bunch of scientists saying, well, the anti-lockdown protests were bad and people shouldn't have done that because that could spread COVID. But these protests are good. So we should allow them, even though there's a risk of spreading COVID. And I wrote an article for Ordinary Times saying this is really, really bad. You're destroying your credibility here because you can't say that. Our scientific opinion is changing based on politics. You do have to cross over sometime. I've commented sometimes on the science, and I've sometimes commented on the on the policy. Um, you know, sort of a, a a blogger and a and a writer and and you know, being on Twitter. But you have to be very careful when you cross over those roles, because if there is a perception that your politics are informing the science, you're really damaging your credibility.
1: Yeah, Michael Siegel joining us. This all happened about the same time the Emily Oster piece came out in the Atlantic. If you don't know what we're talking about, we both read it. I've already commented on it. You've heard my comments on it, so I'll let you rebut here in just a second. Uh, the piece was Let's Declare Pandemic Amnesty. We dealt with it on this program. You can go back and listen to that episode from a couple of days ago. Basically, and by the way, the title was horrible. You, you need to actually read the piece to be fair to her. Um, she, I have found her to be mostly level-headed throughout the pandemic on most things. There's some things I don't agree, but she's not been a bomb thrower. Um, I think she's been mostly even handed. She goes through this pretty like, look, the education stuff was bad. The government stuff was bad. People not listening about the vaccines was bad. I think she's pretty even handed. I think the title kind of throws people off. They reacted to the title, didn't read the whole piece. Having said that the title poses a question that we must deal with. And I've dealt with it. Let's declare a pandemic amnesty. So when something about the same time the fuel's getting thrown on the lab leak fire, you know this goes into my take on it. And I'll just summarize it real quick, and then I'll give you the floor on it. My take on it was, well, it depends. Are you talking about people that made an honest mistake? Are you talking about people that just didn't know any better and adjusted as they went to the information? Is it people that made a mistake and said, "Hey, I messed up. I didn't know any better." Of course, those people should get a, should get some grace and get some forgiveness. But there's a lot of malicious people that use this for a lot of different reasons that don't have one little iota of regret. No, I don't think they should get amnesty because you need accountability for this stuff. And when you're talking about something like a lab leak theory or the origin theories, that's why you look at that, because you want to prevent this from happening again. And you don't get that without accountability. So I can't get on board with a blanket amnesty, even though I think we all should treat each other a little bit better. Your thoughts after reading the piece and hearing my commentary.
2: Well, I I agree with a lot of what you said. A lot of people had not read the piece, and more, more of them are not familiar with who Emily Oster is. She is, if you're jumping on her, you're shooting your own side. She was one of the first ones to say, we should be reopening schools. She was saying that in summer 2020. She was saying, she's an economist, and she said, looking at the data, it does not look like we're getting a lot of spread in schools. Now, there's a caveat to that. There were mitigations, there was improvements in ventilation, masking, and especially once vaccines came out about six months later, that really made it uh, easier to put people back in school. So she was one of the good guys. You don't want to be jumping on her. She And as you point out, she's also talking about the early days. You know, people forget what it was like two and a half years ago that this was kind of terrifying that we had this disease coming out. We didn't know a lot about it. We knew it was very infectious. We knew it killed and In the early days we probably you know we probably did overreact because we didn't want to happen to happen in the united states what happened in italy know, people like to say well COVID only kills one percent of the people who catch it which as as though that one percent is not a lot but that's if you're getting first-rate medical care in italy you remember when they really got hit hard they were doing triage they were saying this person's 80 years old we're just going to let them die we don't have the resources to treat everyone this person's morbidly obese. We're going to let them die. We don't have the resources to treat everyone. And a lot of the restrictions early on were to prevent that situation from happening in America, which it did. We did not get to that quite that point of triage. Now we know that some of those were arbitrary and kind of stupid. Like you know, she, she talks about beaches being shut down. Beaches were one of the safest places you could be. We didn't really know that at the time, but in retrospect, that was that was dumb. A lot of things were kind of arbitrary and capricious. But if you think having arbitrary, capricious overreactions to a public danger is unique to COVID, I would suggest that you're not terribly familiar with the history of American politics. We do this with everything. And that plugs into sort of what you were saying that this exposed the way we react to issues, that we have a tendency to say, we must do something. This is something. Let's do it. Oh, you don't want to do it? Then you don't want to do anything. And so I think we, we did need a more vigorous debate on these subjects. Schools, it wasn't obvious that schools could be kept open because, you know, I mean, I'm just getting over a cold my son brought home from school, but it does appear that we could reopen schools. And I remember I was teaching at Penn State in fall of 2020, and a lot of people were telling me this is going to be a disaster. We're going to have mass casualties. We're going to shut down the school in five weeks and so forth. And we didn't. We had We did have a lot of students get sick. Um, some of them seriously, but between masking and eventually vaccinations and uh, central quarantine for students who, got, who were exposed and lots of testing, we were able to keep in-person schooling into, from the beginning of it till Thanksgiving break. And, you know, that was a, a learning lesson for us that, yes, we can control this without sending everyone home. I also think people didn't anticipate what a disaster online learning was going to be. You know, we've been doing online learning for a while, especially in colleges. I mean, you did online classes for your education and you, you had good things to say about them in some cases. I don't think anyone anticipated just how bad it was going to be. So later decisions are a lot more debatable. Oster was uh, advocating for opening schools in the fall. I think it could have made a good case then. By spring, when we had most of the teachers vaccinated, you absolutely could have opened schools. And so uh, I think we should have a, a really good uh, discussion about that. Uh, but I would point out to a lot of the people jumping on Oster and a lot of people criticizing the early decision making, if we start holding people accountable for things they said and did during COVID, it's not going to go the way you think. We're going to be talking about holding people accountable who said this was just the flu. We're going to be holding people accountable who, you know, were vaccinated and continue to lie about the vaccine saying they're unsafe. There is a now a very good scientific uh, paper out showing that red areas of the country had much higher death rates than blue areas of the country, even when you correct for differences in age because they were way less vaccinated. And that was a lot of vaccine skepticism that was pushed by a lot of the people jumping on Emily Oster and saying she's, she's wrong and she's crazy and she's stupid, that they pushed this vaccine skepticism, which killed conservatively tens of thousands of people that didn't need to die. So we're going to talk about that kind of accountability or are we just talking about accountability for those early days? Now, I do think they have... Two legitimate points when they talk about the early days of of, uh, COVID and and the sort of um, government, you know, the, the sort of establishment response. One is the hypocrisy that you had, you know, people saying you can't go to your grandmother's funeral. And then when John Lewis dies, they have a big funeral or people saying you can't go out to eat. And then they're having dinner at the French laundry. Absolutely call out hypocrisy. And those people who were hypocrites absolutely need to be held accountable. And I also think that we should talk about the certainty with, with a, lot of the, a lot of these things were said. When people, the scientists less than the media, but even some of the scientists were saying, if you go to a baseball game, you're killing grandma. You know, that was just, you know, that kind of certainty was not warranted by the data we had at the time. And this is a, a dilemma for science. A lot of times, if you make it clear that we're not really sure, this is our best, our, the best piece of knowledge we have. People think that you don't know what you're talking about. So that's a a difficult line to thread. So I do think those are are very legitimate criticisms. But plugging back into what you were saying on Tuesday, overall, I think COVID exposed a lot of the underlying problems we have in our politics and the way we discuss things that, you know, you, you and I talked about gun control a few months ago. We have one side that says, if you're against gun control, you want kids to die, you know, or... If we have the other side that it says, if you want gun control, you want tyranny. And, you know, there's this tendency to extreme your opponent's views so that they're easier to dismiss. And so a lot of these hysteria, a lot of the hysteria, a lot of the certainty of the ad hominem was not unique or new to COVID. These are dysfunctions in our political system, dysfunctions in the way we discuss the issues and COVID because it was one of the biggest, probably the biggest crisis we have had since World War II.
1: Yeah, it's Dr. Michael Siegel joining us. You know the one that got me, where I turned. I, I just went, okay, this is. Remember when they banned the seeds up in Michigan? You could not buy seeds to plant. I
2: was actually just going to mention that.
1: That's that's the one for me where I was like, okay. And remember, this is like this is one of the first banned things. Like this is even before I think we shut schools down. They started doing this stuff. I'm like, okay, you're just you're just. This is masturbatory. This is there is no. Rhyme, reason, or something—that's the one that really got me.
2: Yeah, um, for those of you who don't know, um, there was in Michigan they had grocery stores open, but they had non-essential items roped off. And so, here where they roped off the seed aisle, saying, yo know, you can't stop for seeds." And their logic was, "We only want people to go to stores if they absolutely have to. We don't want them shopping." But the amount of time it takes to get seeds from a store, and the amount of risk that people are exposed to. Is minimal. This is the this was the big problem, and it is a again a dysfunction in our political system of not looking at cost benefit analysis. The benefit of roping off seed aisles was could not be measured with the Webb telescope, but the inconvenience it caused to people was was significant. And frankly, having people go outside and garden was one of the better things they could do.
1: Insanity, Doctor Michael Siegel. The most appearances on this program ever. We're going to keep that going as long as we can because he's really, really sharp. And he's becoming a multimedia, multi-platform superstar with his YouTube channel. Also writes at Ordinary Time. Let folks know what you got going on, where they can follow you, all the different things you've got going on. Your latest that we talked about uh, a little bit earlier, the throughput, that is up at Ordinary-Times.com as it is every Thursday. The YouTube channel, your Twitter. Also wrote a good little book, by the way. You got to go pick it up. Let everybody know what you got going on there, sir.
2: Uh, sure. I'm, and Ordinary Times is a good gateway to everything I do. All my videos I post there uh, so that people can find them. I'm I, Actually, now that I have a few subscribers, uh, you can just go to YouTube and Google my name, Michael Siegel Astronomy, and you'll find uh, my video channel. And uh, hopefully you'll find something there that you find interesting. Uh, join the ongoing 2000 comment debate over what the best spaceships in science fiction are. Um, but, yeah, that's that's the best way to find me is usually through ordinary times.
1: We're going to do that one where we talk about the crew and the uh, the military setup of those space captains, too. I'm, I can't wait to get in on that. That's going to be a fun one. Yeah, Dr. We, Michael Siegel. I'm
2: yeah, excited. he was my
1: guest. It, 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 I I just always love we get so obsessed with the, you just proved it. They get so obsessed with the ships. You forget you got to have a crew to run that thing. Yep. does the crew match the ship? Because then the ship doesn't work and doesn't make any sense, but we'll get yeah, into that. Somewhere. not all
0: officers either. <laughs>
1: yeah. Hey, uh, don't get me. like me I'm either. a retired sergeant. Don't get me started on lieutenants. Like, all the lieutenants are superstars. I'm like, no lieutenants are like baby giraffes. They can't even walk in a straight line. You got to like, hold them up. It's ridiculous. Like that's see, I'm giving you all the good channel stuff. I'm not going to give it to you for free. You're going to have to subscribe to his YouTube channel. Dr. Michael Siegel. Love it, buddy. Thanks for the time, sir.
2: All right. Thank you for having me. Yes, sir.